0: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Human Rights Magazine. I'm Derek McCush, editor of the Upstream Journal and of this podcast. This episode follows on the previous one on, in the Pathways to Peace series, which focused on the situation of human rights defenders. There are often people coming into conflict with corporate interests, particularly in extractive industries like mining. To explore the role of business in a peace-building process, I spoke with John Morrison, who has been Chief Executive Officer of the Institute for Human Rights and Business since its beginning in 2009. The Institute states that its mission is to shape policy, advance practice, and strengthen accountability in order to make respect for human rights part of everyday business. I asked John if he could give an overview of how business fits into the big picture of achieving peace and in particular, the relationship between business and human rights. Given concerns that business activities may be more public image than substantive in terms of social responsibility and human rights, along with challenges such as the complexity of supply chains, I ask for his thoughts on whether it's really possible to ensure good behavior.
1: What's interesting about business and human rights, perhaps, is maybe we could argue that's where human rights started way back. Um, play tablets from Persia and Babylon, etc., cetera, that uh, seem to catalogue transactions and the rights of the marketplace. Um, arguably, the Cyrus scroll and other things are the oldest human rights. I mean, we, we, we call them human rights documents. I mean, we, we're the sort of projection from now to then. But certainly if we think about the slave trade and uh the fact um, that you know, 300 years ago, was it 75% of the world's population were either in forced labour, servitude, or in uh, or slaves. You know that the 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 economic systems of the world and you know, therefore, business has for for much of history and in many places been premised on the abuse of rights. I mean, humans were a, a, an economic resource to be exploited. Um, like natural resources, like animals, like trees, etc. And I guess it's uh, an enlightenment view of the past 250 years that, that 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 humans are not a resource the same as as any other resource. And I think we're in a place of history now where we where we see where where where, where that's come a lot further. Um, and so I think when we think about human rights and business now, yes, we can think about it in the context of 1948 and the Universal Declaration and the international law that's come from the UN and the ILO. But there's a there's, there's, particularly when you frame it around an issue like peace, right, and the prevention of conflict and issues of natural justice and things, there's a, there's a much deeper relationship, I think, between non-state actors like business and, and society. I mean, business is society. Society is business. Um, it's it's an artifice, perhaps, in the way that we've constructed modern corporations today, to to pretend that they don't have responsibilities for human rights in the, in the way that other other actors do. So I think I sometimes think that the business and human rights movement of the past twenty years, which has focused a lot around sort of the extractive sector and the apparel supply chains that span the globe, is a correction to a much deeper sort of almost intuitive understanding that of course corporations have human rights responsibilities. (laughs) When did we ever get to a point where we thought that they didn't? So we've arrived at a place now where the international community have recognized that businesses have a direct responsibility to prevent harms um, and to take active steps to build their leverage to to, to minimize that risk. And they should categorize, they should prioritize human rights harms that they themselves cause. Uh, Then the secondary consideration are those to which they contribute. And then there's sort of a wider responsibility, a tertiary sphere, if you like, around um, linkage uh, human rights issues to which they're directly linked in their wider supply chain, et cetera. And this has now become an international norm. The, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights are fundamentally a governance document that bring the, the duties of, of, of states and the responsibilities of business into the same framework, which is primarily about prevention, but it's also about the responsibility to provide remedies. When when bad things happen, the business and states both have a shared responsibility for the delivery of, of adequate remedies. So it's out there as a norm, and you know, what I think is now is is that we have this normative framework that is lapping up at the same shores of our intuitive sense. Uh, has it really got into the boardroom? Not yet. Um, I'm co-chairing the World Economic Forum's Council on Human Rights at the moment, and our big focus is to get this into boardrooms. It's not yet a duty for the people who have the fiduciary legal responsibilities for companies to to, to have human rights responsibilities, but I think that day is coming. Um, The European Commission is moving in that direction at the moment and I think in other jurisdictions we're seeing governments thinking about mandating diversity and other responsibilities to board directors. And I think if you're a smart director of a company, you're not gonna wait for law to come and tell you you need to do this, it's common sense. And we're beginning to see already Sometimes it's shareholders, sometimes it's just society responding in very strong ways to companies that are mucking up either through, I mean, the huge mining disasters we've seen in Brazil and elsewhere. But one, one I, an example I point to a lot is Rio Tinto's decision to blow up um, a native Austro- Australian site, heritage site that's 46,000 years old you know, humans only got to Australia, what, it's 50-odd thousand years ago. So one of the oldest archaeological monuments and, and something of direct, uh, mod, you know, living meaning to native Australians was blown up by Rio Tinto and its mining operations. inadvertently, I'm sure, but it, would, it happened nevertheless. And now, you know, the, the, several board members have resigned. The CEO was fired. No one died. But, you know, the senior management of the company was removed and many board members, and for the first time ever, they now have a native Australian board member too. And I think that really does illustrate that these issues of human rights, even in cases where no one is dying, um, it's a cultural rights issue, but it's become so salient now that the the company knows that... Uh, it has to change. It has to change in its governance and who sits on the highest table in the company. So I think, although the normative framework emerged 10 years ago, maybe the next 10 years we're going to see human rights get into the DNA of companies. Um, And uh, the just transition processes we're going to see around climate change as well and climate justice, and these things are also going to demand that. So although, yeah, I think the next 10 years will show some dramatic shift in the way that corporations have to begin to align themselves, not just with the diktats of the marketplace or of investors, but also social and environmental expectations. And we talk about ESG a lot, environmental social governance. Um, there's not a bank on the planet now that doesn't have an ESG policy. Uh, Of course, the S in ESG often gets overlooked, so the human rights side is the weakest, but that is changing, and who knows, in the next 10 years, it really might be the case that the social and environmental behavior of a company will be as important as its financial behavior.
0: This kind of positive transformation assumes a degree of transparency, access to information, and some level of accountability within a corporate structure. There are corporations out there, of course, that aren't concerned with ESG, and there are strong, growing economies like China on one hand, and Western social pressure to improve on the other, along with emergent regulations like the EU due diligence legislation. I ask to what extent we need that regulation to happen alongside of social pressure.
1: I'm not a lawyer, but I teach international law, and I, I'm a firm believer in law, but I but I think. The most important thing here is there's a shift in behavior and impact in people's lives right that's we've got to think about what we're aiming at here is 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 a better enjoyment of rights around the world and less frequent violation of those rights now I, i i believe that if we're talking about peace the biggest threat to peace in the world today and in the 20th century wasn't business although business can be a big threat to peace but governments and dictators, fascists and communists. And and I mean, you just have to look even today and I'll, I want to talk about Myanmar because we have a center in Myanmar. It's one of the countries we work in and we're right in the middle of this nexus. So I'm, you know, I still think it holds true that it's state actors that are the biggest threat to peace um, um, or the absence of effective state actors and, and therefore chaos. Um, and thugs and corrupt businesses, right, as well. So I think there needs to be much stronger law, and the the, the discussions in the UN over the past five years for a binding international treaty on business and human rights are important, but they also illustrate how difficult and complex the process will be at the current time. But I would argue that making human rights due diligence mandatory for companies around the world is such a small step if if we're talking about peace and stability in the absence of harm, if you look at the review of the French law, which has been there now there for two years, a a recent article I read, a report I read that reviewed the behaviour of 103 French companies, these mandatory due diligence reports are only getting to senior management 20% of the time, and at board level even less. So this is a box-ticking approach. And so the danger of law, if the law is not, framed in the right way, and I'd say the UK Modern Slavery Act is another example of this, that's law, but it's law that's, that's, that's resulted in tick, ticking boxes. Um, and most of the companies that report under the UK Modern Slavery Act know, they know that there is a strong probability of, of the risk of slavery in their global supply chain, if they have a global supply chain. How many of them say that in their modern slavery reports? Virtually none, because corporate lawyers won't allow companies to talk about that theoretical risk because of the the risk of liability. So we have this silly game (laughs) that's going on at the moment. So definitely we need stronger legal accountability, but we've got to be super smart about what that legal accountability looks like.
0: If we are to be cautious about the role of the state in ensuring good corporate behaviour... How do we build greater social awareness and popular support of the importance of human rights in corporate behavior as part of a broader peace-building process?
1: You know, one one area where we have made progress as a movement over the past 25, 30 years has been around the transparency of the extractive sector. If we think about blood diamonds, the Kimberley process, the extractive industry transparency initiative. Um... Honestly, you know the, the, those sectors are better places um, in terms of their human rights behaviour than was the case of 30 years ago. In fact, you know, 30 years ago, I would say there was a business case to support corrupt governments to pay bribes. You know, um, that, that was the business case for doing uh, doing deals in in, in in those countries or every country. I'm not saying those countries. I mean that includes Canada and the UK. I would say um, that's that's turned on the head, um, not wholly, but in part, um, And that, I would say, has been primarily because of transparency requirements through the whole value chain. Um, and I think we need more of that. So the thing I'm worried about, I'm worried about lots of things, but one of the things I'm worried about is the rush to, 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 to renewables. Um, and, and that's a good thing, right? But, you know, some people have predicted we're going to need 300% more copper uh, out of the ground by 2050. More copper out of the ground than than has ever been taken out of the ground since the Bronze Age. We're going to see, you know, huge amounts of lithium, cobalt, rare earth metals, etc. We know where these minerals are. People now want to also prospect the Arctic and indigenous lands, the seabed, etc. for the green utopia. And... It's needed. I mean, we know that that the climate change is an existential risk, but it's at times like this where there's a strong overriding reason to take shortcuts and move quickly, where big mistakes can be made. And it's not just like a global supply chain for these rare earth metals. We're also moving into a, a period of time where governments and companies want to securitize their supply on these things. So it's not enough. You know, if half the world's copper is smelted in China. That isn't going to satisfy Western governments that they have security of supply on copper, even though the copper's there. So they then have to explain to indigenous peoples, "We need this mine in your land, not because there's a global shortage of copper, but there's a low, there's a global shortage of copper under our control." Um, and this is the world we're moving into. So I think what we need is radical transparency on the transition in to the green economy and the transition out of the high-carbon economy, where also huge mistakes can be made in terms of the dumping of of assets back onto governments and mass unemployment and the the negatives that can happen from a human rights perspective there as well. Clarity about who is selling what to whom, uh, where the provenance, the traceability of commodities, um, very few commodities are traceable apart from the big diamonds, we have now with blockchain and DNA, we're beginning to get to the point where you can get full traceability for most. Well, we haven't, and I think we're at, you know in the next ten years we'll be del- we'll be able to deliver much greater transparency, both in terms of money, but also the flow of commodities. And then that will enable an indigenous group or a local community to say, "You don't really need that mine, do you?" Um, or or. You, maybe you do need the mine, but do you really need it here? Or if now we get it, there is a need for a mine. Maybe this is the best place, but we want some equity in that. And it gives them negotiating power over free, prior and informed consent.
0: John gave an example of the dynamic between state and business interests by discussing the engagement of the Institute for Human Rights and Business in Myanmar. And
1: Myanmar is a, class, is a great I mean, it's a terribly sad case study, but it's a good case study to look at. You know, we established the Myanmar Center for Responsible Business in 2013. We got into the country even before sanctions were lifted. Uh, Six European governments support it. The idea is to to track the activities of all international companies coming in, including Chinese and Asian companies, and to make doing the right thing in terms of human rights and responsible business a pre-competitive issue. And I think, ironically, we were able to achieve that. And then there was genocide in Rakhine State three years ago, and now there's been a coup. And what's interesting, uh, Telenor, the big Norwegian telecommunications company, was criticised when it invested in Myanmar in 2013-2014. Now there's a complaint to the Norwegian government about Telenor leaving uh, Myanmar, because the realisation is, of course, when international companies that have made commitments to human rights, leave a country like Myanmar that's facing COVID, an unvaccinated population with very little protection and a military coup and nascent civil war. When the international players leave, you're left with even less leverage in terms of human rights. So it really does sort of bookend. If you're thinking about the role of business and peace, yes, you do need business there. Um, well, no, you do need businesses that are there to do the right thing, right? Um, but, but when the businesses leave, that's even more problematic, but particularly when they sell on to a Lebanese private equity company that might then flip the assets to the Burmese military, um, which we're all terrified of at the moment. So the issue of business and human rights some, you know, is really complex. It is about how businesses behave, but it's the leverage that businesses have over governments and other actors that is really critical when we think about it from a peace perspective.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.